So my company has decided to start asking our members to leave us ratings on Google. And it's an obvious ploy to try and get our Google rating up so that we have more people coming in and we don't look so awful on Google and all that stuff. Did you look awful before? I don't think so. I mean, like, I think it was like a 3.6 before, which is not bad considering that most Google, Google reviewers go on for like bad reviews, you know? Sure. And so we went through like all of this training and basically it's just a really simple platform where we say, hey, can we send you a link to a star rating system? And if they say yes, then we send them the link and hopefully maybe they'll leave us five stars. And mm-hmm. for the first few days, I was just like, eh, if I remember to, like, I'll send it out. But, like, what's in it for me? I don't really care. Whatever. I'll do it because I was asked to do it. Mm-hmm. But everything changed with one word. Oh. Leaderboard. Oh. <laughs> so that's just what I think it is? Just shows who sent out the most surveys and who uh, got yeah. the most back. And there is something about being able to compare myself to everybody that all of a sudden just like snapped my brain into immediate like I want to be on the top I want to be on the top of the leaderboard (laughs) that's great for you (laughs) yeah but it's like so I told my husband this and he was like that is exactly what they want you to do Audrey and I'm like yeah so he said you are literally doing exactly what they want you to do and all they had to do was put up a leaderboard yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that'd get me that'd get me too. Um the places that I served at always did those too and it always amped it up for some reason. Just having your name lowered over everybody else's means it's it's, it's so tempting. It's so enticing. <laughs> I I don't know what it is about it, but I'm just like I got to send out more surveys. Got to get tagged mm-hmm. on more surveys. Gotta have the more, I have to have the most tagged surveys out of everybody. I gotta, I gotta. Yeah. What do I get out of it? Satisfaction of knowing that my name's at the top of the list. And that's, that's a lot. That's enough, you know? I sure hope a so. Little. I mean, it's enough for me. Yeah. But at the <laughs> same time, okay. <laughs> at the same time, I thought about it and I'm like, this is literally the episode of Community with Meow Meow Beans. Like, I literally just watched that one today. <laughs> one of the only really good ones in season five i don't know yeah yeah something like that but yeah yeah just uh i think that's a pretty direct spoof off of brave new world meow meow beans episode yeah yeah i don't know i see a lot of parallels did you have a segue into what we wanted to talk about no was brave new world written by an american author i was about to say that would have been really great if it was because i think the answer is no i'm guessing he's british yeah she's english But that makes sense. There's a lot of British... Yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Cue theme music. Yeah, so we're not talking about British authors today. We are talking about American authors, and it is something that we are both extremely excited about. Yes. Uh, Carmen, because she just graduated with her English degree, 
and me just because I'm an enthusiast, a literature enthusiast, a freewheeling. Um, yeah, I studied, I studied English literature. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was probably not the wisest of majors, but it worked out for me. I mean, career wise, it probably wasn't the wisest of majors, but I, I feel okay with that. And I was really validated at the end of my educational experience with one of my teachers who taught me literary criticism and was my senior seminar leader and everything. And she, she validated the hell out of all of us in that class and said, like, it's okay if none of this is practical, like, those the, like, none of it is literally practical or applicable. Like, literature doesn't really apply to survival or, you know, money changing hands, really. But she said, the skills that you're learning, though, to learn how to dissect and, you know, analyze and share and discuss, those are the kinds of skills that carry on throughout your life and make an English major pretty much you know, open to any career field after they graduate. And that's definitely what I found. I did find something in my field. I am a writer of sorts, but um, I found to value the English major and studying novels and works, other works of um, other pieces of writing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I found, I found the having to learn how to dissect those and really communicate my ideas and come up with new ideas and organize them into something coherent and communicable um, is one of my favorite experiences from school and kind of is what, yeah, it's just one of my passions. And I feel like it probably could have applied to a lot of, a lot of different types of work, you know, organizing papers and studies and statistics and all that stuff. But the, you know, I did it with English. And so English kind of became my passion because it had to be, because I kind of obsessed over it for a while, (laughs) you know, it's like all these details. I was just literally, it was always on my mind. Yeah, that was a long rant. I didn't mean to go on that. <laughs> no, it's all good. I I don't have anything nearly as um, meaningful. I I think just like I said, I'm I'm an enthusiast, and honestly, part of the reason why we started talking about this was that um, we were coming up with ideas of things that we wanted to talk about, and generally, when we do these brainstorming sessions. Uh, I'll come up with some things that I'm really interested in and Carmen will come up with things that she's really interested in. And American writing has been on our list for a really, really long time. Yeah. And we've kind of like gone back and forth on it. Like, yeah, let's do it. And no, we need to work on this. We need more time. And then, yeah, now's the time. And then, no, we need more time. And Mm -hmm. it took a while. Yeah. And throughout all this, the one question that kept on popping up, at least for me, I don't know how much it popped up for Carmen, was what makes an American novel like American, you know, Mm -hmm. like America, but also like classically American and also uh, referring to like, what is the great American novel? Mm -hmm. The term the great American novel comes from an essay called The Nation by John William DeForest. And it's something that you can find online. It's, you know, it's in the public domain. Uh, it, it talks about basically what, what does the content have to have in it? And he comes to his own conclusion that the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin can be considered the great American novel. But mm-hmm. this was also written in 1868. So mm-hmm. I think saying that, that it's still Uncle Tom's Cabin might be 
outdated or it might not be it depends on your opinion uh but he basically wants the novel to hit on what the true american experience is uh not just you know experiences that happen linearly through time but also emotionally Hmm. and so i i see where he's coming from with uncle tom's cabin he does explore a few other novels and he mentions works of genre fiction um, as well as fiction that is written by, you know, wealthier white people. Uh, yeah. But he I think that his conclusion is thoughtful, if not, again, necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. I think that what we'll discover, like spoiler alert, is that you cannot name one great American novel. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah because not one because the idea itself was probably built throughout a couple decades like you know even this man that gave that definition he would he would have put it together through multiple works and so it can't be all represented in one because it's represented by you know multiple american dreams if you will like every american novel has its own american taste depending on the american who wrote it you know mm-hmm. like um yeah and i had a good professor who talked about what he thought he never explicitly stated it. He's kind of ambiguous about it, but I think he thought that truly a great American novel will have some historical like ambiguity to it that, you know, um, especially he really loved colonial works where, you know, it was from the side of the white man and he loved to explore the other side and look for these long lost transcripts of actual native Americans, you know, that are just as informational, not even fictional, but they just didn't really make it to the, the canon you know what I mean because mm-hmm. it just wasn't it just wasn't the right time or whatever but he seemed to think um from you know colonial times to you know Hawthorne times I guess that would be the romantic era that the the novel al- almost always has kind of like a it questions identity in the sense of like who are you as an American um and how are you going to tell an American story And that always brings in questions of truth and like, is truth the most valuable aspect in storytelling? Like if we want to communicate truth, like true feelings and true circumstances, how do we do that in words that can't really totally capture those moments? And so it's like, it starts to question if truth is really relevant to, you know, a great American story, whether it has to be true to represent, you know, the true American experience. Um, so I like I hope I hope that at, by the end of this podcast we kind of end there. I'm um, talking about one of my favorite American novels, The Things They Carried. Mm-hmm. It talks about those themes so well, and that's just like this episode. Will, this will probably end up being a two part episode just because we're both very passionate passionate <laughs> about it. Yeah, and I just I have a feeling that the whole last chunk um, of our discussion is going to be about modernism and postmodernism because that is itself is essential to, to American novels and how they changed and who started writing them. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And I know my favorite American novel is, is a postmodernism novel as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that eventually. I think what we'll probably do is we'll talk about the early years of, American literature to start out with. And once we hit set a base. Yeah. Yeah. Once we hit realism and naturalism, 
uh, we'll we'll probably stop there. And then next time you guys can join us for modernism, postmodernism. And then we'll talk a little bit about how we feel about the term, the great American novel. And we'll talk a little bit more about some kind of philosophical questions that we've had about it. <laughs> this is so exciting. I feel like I'm back in school for like, fun, <laughs> for fun, not for like obligation, but for, for friendship and for learning, not grades and pressure. <laughs> I know, there's something very like, I, I know that it's not going to be conducive to podcasting, but I really just want like, a cup of of hot tea and I want just like I don't know a slice of pizza too <laughs> like mm-hmm. like just lay back and in this virtual reality that we're living right now in June of 2020 let's have a cozy American book, book, book club book club yeah <laughs> where we talk about all the books yeah not just one book but all, all of them. them yeah well Carmen, you are more an expert than I am. Would you like to take the lead with the Colonial Years movement? Yeah, so Colonial Years. Admittedly, so I actually have, I've saved quite a bit of resources from school, from BYU and UVU. And they have a lot of handy, you know, uh, important dates and events and authors and prominent genres and themes. But what I found frustratingly throughout my education was that these eras really can't be just like sliced and diced very easily they bleed into one another mm-hmm. and you know genres that don't have a name until the late 19 the late 20th century you know they've kind of existed for a long time but just weren't really organized into a thought anyway what i'm trying to say is as we go through these eras just know that authors and themes bleed into one another and that every single one is a reaction to the one that came before so mm-hmm. That's kind of how I try to make peace with it being a little complicated. So yeah, colonial times admittedly are not my favorite. Um, Although it is a good opportunity to bring up one of the themes I want to explore, which is, um, you know, the value of truth in storytelling. So John Smith, we know John Smith um, because of Pocahontas, but also because he's pretty famous you know, badass. <laughs> even even if it weren't for the Disney movie, like I, I think we would maybe probably know about <laughs> That's it. That's probably true. So John wrote a lot of stuff about his time in the New World, and it's really controversial now. It was then, but even more now because it's it's not very truthful. He embellishes a lot of his feats and he makes himself out to be a hero in a lot of situations and he makes the Native Americans out to be a lot more open hearted to him rather than, you know, upset that he's like just he's sticking himself in the middle of all their business and kind of being a loud mouth. Yeah, I think of um I think of Gilderoy Lockhart from Harry Potter, to be honest. <laughs> and I've made the- <laughs> I, I've always thought about that. Actually, I think John Smith probably looks a lot like the actor that plays him. That's just <laughs> that. So I can see that. I can definitely see that. <laughs> yeah. So the truth is, is his, a lot of his works were more fiction than fact, and they were propaganda to get people interested in it in the new world and to make it seem a lot more adventurous and romantic than, you know, the reality, which was scary and barren, you know, opportunity abounds, but it's not easy. And so 
a lot of his, a lot of his writings have made it really far. <laughs> to be honest, I can't even name one, but I know that they're important in a literature sense. A lot of his uh, little journal entries and his little stories are still popular today, just because um, they're really well written and they're pretty fantastic. And they tell an American story that maybe is John Smith's American story. <laughs> it might not have reflected, you know, objective reality, but maybe for John Smith, he really was, you know, the hero of it all. And sure. so, so it, it's kind of interesting. I like to point out that even in the colonial period, very far from the postmodern period, which we're in right now is already kind of playing based on the popularity that his writings had, people preferred them, even if they knew that they were controversial and probably not true. So what does that say about truth in storytelling? Is it always necessary to be completely truthful to tell a true story? You know what I mean? Right. Well, and it, it really lays the foundation for probably the most popular American trope of all time, which is the rags to riches story, right? Yeah. Like the American dream. You come over to America with absolutely nothing and you can build yourself up to something great. And the fact that he was in a position to basically say that I am the hero of that story and I am great and I've done all of these great and wonderful things. And this new world is a place of plenty and adventure and everything that you are missing in the old world can be found here. Yeah, it can be found here. And that definitely leads into, like I said, just this trope at this point mm -hmm. of America is a place where things are different. Things can be different with a capital yeah. D. Yeah, I love it. Um, excuse me. Other notable authors of this era, which is officially called the period of religious understanding, um, lasted from 1492 to about 1750. Other notable authors include Winthrop, John Winthrop, the Puritan, a lot of Puritan writing, which Puritanism focuses on original sin, um, a limited atonement. And uh, if you're the chosen one, that's great. But if you're not, there's really nothing you can do. It's it's kind of dark for the people that aren't in the inner circle, you know? <laughs> yes. So it's a little bleak. Um, and I see... Yeah, I see a lot of um, early American ideals in that, just the strictness and the, you know, the purity and just the cold religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is the point where we need to kind of concede that not all of the earliest American literature was actually in America. Uh, yeah, because we've got philosophers like John Calvin, who definitely perpetuated these ideas of men and people, I guess, men as in people, are born evil and are prone to corruption. And if you are not absolutely pure, then you have no hope. And it's like you said, it's yeah. very, very bleak. Um, there is so another American theme that is starts here is self determinism. And as bleak as Puritan and Calvinism is, um, you do have the power to search for yourself and figure out for yourself if you are the chosen one, even if you can't change your fate. Um, there is a little element of, you know, discovering for yourself and taking individual power for yourself, but it's limited because you can't really change that fate, which I think is just so oppositely America, you know, in America, yeah. you can change your stars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mary Rollinson wrote a captivity narrative. Um, Mary Rowlandson wrote a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson 
It's an autobiography of her experience. Um, it's she popularized the captivity narrative, um, and this is another. I just. I have written here, we've come to value early colonial work that didn't come from white people, but that's only recently. We've come to value, um, you know, the other side of the story and the rewriting history or un unlearning white history and stuff like that. And so this is another thing. Her, her captivity narrative written from the white person's perspective is, you know, the popular one. And we're only now kind of starting to appreciate the things that came from the other side. So it, it just begs the question, will American novels always involve some degree of rewriting or reconsidering history? And I think yes, especially where yeah. we are now in postmodernism. Authors from the fringes are coming out, uh, telling stories that, like telling the same story, but still stories we've never heard. Yeah, I think that we're definitely moving into a period of time where we are far more open to accepting that there are multiple sides to each story and that it's not just black or white. The the captivity narrative definitely put in place this idea of good and bad. And if, if you've ever read it, you know that she does make some concessions like, oh yes, this Native American leader did still treat me with a certain amount of, of mercy and grace and humanism. But there's still that subtext of like, she didn't expect that from another human being right and there's also this subtext of like of her being like so gracious and patient with them you know like yeah so there's definitely that sort of black and white aspect to it that i do appreciate that postmodernism is moving out of but it's definitely a theme that we are going to be seeing as we continue on through these different eras of writing yep era era <laughs> age of reason Age of Reason, there's really only one man I want to talk about within the Age of Reason because I think it's a little boring. It's a lot of letters and it's a lot of um, political talk, which I shouldn't think is boring. I, it's, you know, abolition and women's suffrage. It's all very important, but it it's it's kind of the opposite of the romantic period. It's very reasonable, as you can see in the... The Age of Reason is reasonable? The Age of Reason. Yes, it is. <laughs> what? Um <laughs> So um, Benjamin Franklin is the one I want to talk about. He wrote an autobiography that set a lot of the groundwork for the formation of what we now call the American dream or the American ideal or the American man. And he was a very organized man, very methodical about the way he improved himself. Like it was kind of like, it was almost like a checklist for him. Like I do this and I filled my service quota. I do this and I filled this and I should be a fulfilled person. You know, and he makes it very easy for lost people who are looking for some guidance in an age of reason. So that would be probably not religion, but still looking for guidance. Um, it, give, it makes it makes good reading for them because they can have a very palpable list of things to do, things to improve about themselves. And that's kind of what poor Richard's almanac does, too. It gives tips on how to be how to be a proper American man, how to carry yourself in a civil manner and how to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder how much of the romanticism of obsessive compulsive disorder comes from Ben Franklin. Mm. Like I'm sure it would have happened anyway, but the fact yeah. that he does have this checklist that he almost obsessively, like obsessively, you know, goes through, uh, it, it does make you wonder a little bit, just yeah. a little bit. A wee bit. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, for all for all intents and purposes, it did seem to do him well. I mean, I would not call Ben Franklin a particularly well-adjusted person. I don't think <laughs> even by, I don't even think even by those by back then standards. But on paper, if he really kind of kept the, the schedule that he kept and ate the diet that he ate, you know, that's respectable in and of itself. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it takes energy and time to come up with those lists to begin with, right? So, right, yeah, and to f- that's like seventy percent of the job. Yeah. So this this era focused a lot on personal national freedoms and especially kind of juxtapositioning the formation of a personal character with the formation of an American ideal, like who you're becoming as a person, like if that were the main story in a novel, who you're becoming as a person is a metaphor for what America is becoming in the world stage. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite ones just because most, you know, most American stories are from picking yourself up from the bottom and working your way up, which I guess is kind of the story of the American country. There's a little bit more gritty details in there than that, but it was, you know, it was a struggle for a really long time. Sure. I mean, after the decimation of the Native Americans, they were kind of starting from ground zero, I guess. <laughs> oof, oof. That's the thing that no one wants to talk about, though, is that kind of puts a sour, uh, kind of puts a sour taste on the whole American story, which I'm still getting used to, which I didn't unlearn until maybe about uh, as, as as little as maybe five years ago. I didn't really unlearn the narrative I was fed growing up until. Yeah. Very- and the other important thing to remember is that we very much focus on the narratives of these wealthy white men who held positions of power. And sure, this is their story, and they definitely can see that building of the country around their own selves. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't want to throw out the term male ego lightly, but <laughs> at the same time, like, I don't think there were any women or minorities or even poor white men who felt the same way you know i i think that they saw that it was either hopeless or a monumental struggle like almost impossible struggle and that the way that america was headed was not reflective of their own experiences wow awesome (laughs) i just think that was was very well said (laughs) it's uh yeah it's a It's a hard thing to come to terms with, but yes, we are starting to focus more on um, stories from the fringes and just the other side. And it sounds hokey and it sounds cheesy, but you know, like, look at the other side. There really is, there really is another story. You know, all uh, all the townspeople thought Frankenstein's monster was a monster, but from his perspective, he was, you know, a a book lover who just wanted friendship. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I just bring it up because we talk about the age of reason and we do think about men like Ben Franklin and a lot of the other founding fathers who either through their autobiographies or biographies have become really popular as, you know, in all capitals, this is the founding of America. And I think that the way that we define the age of reason in the future is going to change based off of the different writings that we're willing to focus on more and more. Yeah. Again, focusing more on the experiences of the people who helped build America, probably in a way that is more meaningful than even the founding fathers. You know, I I know that's probably going to be like a a hyperbolic thing to say, but we have to remember that there were a lot of people who 
had to actually do the hard work, mm-hmm. you know? The founding fathers, yes, they they came up with very important ideals that were, you know, the huge driving force behind the revolution and behind the formation of early America, but they also weren't the only ones to fight in the revolution, and they weren't the only ones to form the states and form the states' constitutions. And, you know, do we want to talk about the wives of the people who formed those constitutions, the state constitutions? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of influence did they have on it? Yeah. And, you know, that's that's just scraping the surface. So, Oh, for sure. Well, and to cover up all this discomfort with this kind of <laughs> past comes the um, romanticism. And I... I have a book that I go to for a romantic novel, The Last of the Mohicans. I really hated this novel and I read it for class and I understand why it's like a, an, a, a classic American novel and why it's renowned, but it was just reading it from reading it now, just a lot of the language they use to characterize the native Americans and a lot of the language they use to, you know, put themselves up as the saviors is really frustrating to get to. And it's so, it's so past the point of realism. I get so romanticized that it's kind of sickly sweet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But yeah, so we have the age of romanticism, which started at around 1820. And so we have last of the Mohicans was written in the mid 18th century. So it kind of preceded this period. But like I said, the eras kind of bleed into each other. The romanticism focused a lot on the theme of transcendentalism, which was a theme closely tied to the author Emerson, who kind of popularized the essay as a piece of discourse in this time. And transcendentalism was all about self-enlightenment and, you know, shunning society's influences to really find out who you are because you can't, you have to kind of unbuild yourself, right? Right. So it focuses on the individual and... Um, yeah. Yeah. I, whenever I hear the term transcendentalism, I have one of those almost PTSD-esque flashbacks to high school. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned it before. I'm actually like 99% certain that I've mentioned it before through weird scheduling things in a high school. I ended up having the same English teacher for three out of my four years. Oh yeah. I remember. And so in my sophomore year of high school, he taught the English to honors class about transcendentalism. We did read Emerson and we also watched Napoleon Dynamite. Yes. And oh, an American gem. We spent a full week talking about how Napoleon Dynamite is just emblematic of transcendentalism. And we had to do so many different assignments related to it, including as we are watching the film, writing down 50 questions that we would then have to answer in like short form. (laughs) How does this, like, how is this a transcendentalist theme? How is this a transcendentalist symbol? And that's insane. I love, I love the assignment, but it stresses me out too. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think that that is probably like, if I had to pinpoint one, at least beginning source of my ability to just pull it out of my ass yeah that would be it yeah i'm probably gonna have to bleep that out that's okay that's fine (laughs) it's just like every i know exactly how you feel that was the last two years of my school was just 
continually making up crap. And that's, that's, that's okay. It, it reminds, it's nine times out of 10, it's going to really, honestly, even 99 times out of a hundred, it's probably going to suck, but there's one, there could be one hidden gem in there, you know? Yeah. It's all about trying to talk about it, at, like trying to put it into words, at least trying. That's the first step. Yeah. And literary <laughs> criticism. <laughs> and there was one question in particular that I remember, like 15 years later, probably because my teacher saw it as a unique one. And he was like, oh, this is a good question. There's the scene where Napoleon is at the school dance mm-hmm. and, you know, he's dancing with, uh, oh, I don't even remember Deb. her name. Deb. Deb. And his head keeps on bumping into one of like the cardboard star cutouts. Mm-hmm. And my transcendentalism question was, what is the meaning behind Napoleon constantly bumping his head into the star? <laughs> and the answer was, he is recognizing himself as a individual who can really shine as long as he is willing to acknowledge his yeah. difference uh which is emphasized by the fact that he's so much taller than everybody else and that's how he's hitting his head on the star and i mean that is just and that's one thing that's one thing that i can guarantee that the the movie the movie makers were not trying to do but the thing no, i keep trying to no. insist the thing i keep trying to insist to michael and others that i usually try to corner and into conversations like this is that that doesn't matter and I don't care (laughs) like really like I literary criticism and I hope we'll talk more about this in the modern episode but it's all about just like what if it's all speculation and that's just that's where it starts it's literally theory and yeah I get a huge kick out of it (laughs) yep my English teacher said it doesn't matter guys the author is dead and we all said this movie came out two years ago. The author yeah. is very much alive. Yeah, we can ask them. Yep. Oh, I love matter. it. The author nope, doesn't matter. Yeah, it's the second his pen left the or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we got transcendental Napoleon. Um, we have so um, um, Emerson, the essay writer, wrote an essay called Self Reliance, and that had a lot to do with kind of, I, in my opinion, supplementing um, Benjamin Franklin's kind of blueprints for being a good American. Emerson kind of upped that a little bit with some, a little touch of like, I don't want to say more of a challenge because Benjamin Franklin, he challenged them for sure. But Emerson challenged them more mentally. I think if you follow Benjamin Franklin's regimen, you're going to be, you're not going to have a lot of time to think about um, things other than getting, getting on schedule and completing this. But with Emerson, he encourages um, self-reflection and, asking hard questions and, you know, shaping that part of our American identity. Mm-hmm. Whereas Benjamin Franklin shaping the, you know, work ethic part of our American identity. We also have authors like Melville who wrote Moby Dick, which I famously dislike. <laughs> famously, not really, but I, uh, now you are famously yeah. uh, expressing your dislike for the, you know, the book. It's funny because I love, I love what it does. Um, and I love how long it takes for it to do it. And I think it's very effective, but I just, I hated having to go through it. And I think that makes it a success probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but very romantic, big whale of a tale story, you know, um, but also very, st- uh, 
uh, uncharacteristic language for a romantic period, very short sentences, very choppy descriptions, um, rather than these long flowing, you know, prose descriptions right. from other authors. Like and I, Yeah. And I, I think that the way that uh, Melville writes really emphasizes uh, the, the idea of individuality because yes, we think in, basically just like stream of thought right yeah but at the same time when you acknowledge that maybe the narrator is you know not a scholar and you write to reflect that it can still reflect that individualism uh really by reflecting who the narrator is right so ishmael was not like you know again not a high scholar not somebody who was on this boat to write a research paper right like he he needed a job basically and his education level is is reflected in that i have attempted to read the book i have not finished it i am wondering if maybe i should attempt an audiobook version of it maybe Uh, no that would be even worse i like how could you ever find someone's voice that you're okay listening to just, oh, just whale facts whale facts facts about the whale can i get the um hokey french narrator from spongebob oh yes two months later <laughs> yep yeah i think that's that damn whale emerged again <laughs> <laughs> yep i would do that i would listen to that <laughs> me too <laughs> um so then we have someone like Hawthorne who is famous for his novel, The Scarlet Letter, which I have never read. I skipped it both times. I was required to read it for high school. I was not a good student in high school. I wasn't in college either until very late in my game. Yeah, I, I gave myself one uh, skip in all of high school. And What was your skip? It was The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, I even did A Tale of Two Cities. I did Wuthering Heights. I did Great Expectations. But yeah. uh, when it came to the Scarlet Letter, like that was my skip. Can I just say I'm really happy we don't have to talk about Dickens? Yeah. Yeah. You can say that. I I'm agree. really happy that we don't have to talk about Dickens. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hawthorne also kind of popularized short stories. Uh, they were around before, obviously, but he he made a lot in one one that um, is personal to me is this story about this perfect mechanical butterfly. Um, and it's a beautiful story and it's kind of long. That's, that's the thing with short stories is they're, they're like a good hour and a half to two hour commitment. They're not that short. <laughs> right. But yeah. his, his, I wrote a paper about that. And then um, I asked Audrey to paint me something and she painted something so close to kind of like the thesis of my paper. It was shocking. Aww. Yeah, do you remember what you painted for me? It's that kind of outline yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I do uh, remember it. I didn't know that it was like part of your thesis or, or related closely it was to your so, thesis. Yeah, because you kind of have the sketchy element there. You can see the proportions of, you know, the human face that you're supposed to do when you're drawing. You can see those left over. You have a lot of lines that call attention to like the construction of this face. And then you have this perfect gilded butterfly that this figure, this womanly figure is kind of holding on her fingertips. And it just looks like completely out of place in this kind of sketchy underdeveloped background. And it's, I don't know, it was just so 
beautiful and almost otherworldly. Anyway, I, I could talk a lot about that short story. I'd really like you to read that. In fact, I think you would really like it, Audrey. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll figure out what it's called. Right now it's just called, you know what, let me figure out what it's called. The Artist of the Beautiful. I will probably just print that off and read it. Yeah, uh-huh, you should. It's it's definitely short enough for that. Yeah, and it's just an artist trying to capture beauty and timelessness in a object and then I won't give it away, but we will we will discuss it. <laughs> it's very beautiful. I really like it. We move on to realism um, by 1861 is what my little paper says. We have a lot of stuff going on here, most notably the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, realism, to be honest, I am this isn't my this isn't my era of expertise. I didn't read a lot of Mark Twain. I didn't read a lot of Dickinson. Yeah, and it's I definitely think it's something that people who are into it are really into it, you know? Like it becomes it, it's just very easy for them to read all of those realism genre mm-hmm. era writings. Yes. And I like it in theory because it is characterized by having less of a focus on the moralizing that we saw in the age of reason and the colonial years. And uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's all a response to the previous eras, right? Mm -hmm. So it focuses less on that and it focuses more on presenting a scene or a snapshot of how life really is, which ends up ironically having a lot of novelists moralizing on the immorality of moralizing yeah (laughs) i think the worst offender is probably mark twain yeah and he's a pretty funny offender but to i don't know it's hard for me to read a lot of his stuff he's clever as crap um very sharp but for him for trying not to be for trying to be like satirical about how preachy society is he gets pretty preachy himself sometimes yeah, he does. He kind of comes off as Holden Caulfield, um, kind of like these phonies, you know, I'm the only on non-phony. <laughs> right, yeah. And I, I understand why, in particular, Huckleberry Finn is taught in high school as a sort of like, here's an introduction to American literature and here's why we need to value it because Huckleberry Finn recognizes his friend less as a slave and more as a person by the end of the book. And mm-hmm. I don't know, there's always that disclaimer at the beginning of the section that's like, yeah, it says the N-word in it a lot. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then we can figure out an alternative for you. And da 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 Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But basically, it is it looking at the other things that you can read from that era, I feel like Mark Twain is very much a beginner, like primer on the era because it's very obvious that yes he is trying to capture what life is quote really like oh yes and he is also preaching against that you know preachy morality and we see this in other writings as well not to the extent of mark twain i don't think but again like once once you kind of get used to it you can recognize it through other readings yes yeah, um, he kind of, he, he's another big author, a big um, contributor to what we consider an American novel, because I do think Huckleberry Finn would be considered by many to be the great American novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what is it about, what is it about his writing that really characterizes that Americanness? Is it just the frankness with which he tells these stories or like the, 
the really I think it's honestly the adventure point of view because yeah. it was written in a time obviously where American expansion was still happening, so there was still a sense of adventure, but it had happened enough that for people who were further east on the continent probably did not feel that sense of newness the same way Mm -hmm. that their parents or their grandparents did, right? Yeah, so they craved it. And so I think there was probably, and this is me just guessing, but I would guess that there was probably a sense of projecting yourself onto this young adventurous boy who still has his life ahead of him to build up in whatever way he wants and he doesn't allow social norms to dictate what decisions he makes and because of that a lot of people probably wanted to see themselves in Mm -hmm. Huckleberry Finn and I think that a lot of you know young people see that still you know, who doesn't want to hop on a raft and just float down the river sometimes? <laughs> I'm 30 years old and sometimes I want to float on a raft down the river and just, like, give up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. I think that's a little different, though. Oh, well, maybe. I, I don't know. The sense of wanting to run away is a sense of adventure and unknown. So I think it's probably the same thing. I do also want to talk about Upton Sinclair. That's, uh, yep, I, I'm really glad. Okay, yep, good. Yeah, <laughs> and this is something that is kind of uh, closer to my heart than I think it would be to Carmen's because as a communication major, I do pay attention to the way that journalism functions mm-hmm. in our society. And while journalism is not my main focus, it is something that I do keep on my periphery. Yes. And Upton Sinclair was definitely a huge part in the way that well, we talk about muckraking and you take any history class and you'll learn about muckraking and about how news was reported in just kind of the sleaziest possible way mm-hmm. uh, during that time. And and ethics in reporting was kind of uh, in the metaphorical Wild West stages. Um, but he wrote The Jungle. And for anybody who's not familiar with the book, The Jungle, it's basically an expose on the meatpacking industry and about the just horrors behind the way that, uh, you know, food was handled and the way that the preparers were treated, the employees. And it brought about a lot of positive change in, in both the work industry, but also in the food industry. And it's important to note that because even though it's not fiction, it does influence like the American writing in a significant way in that it enabled us to acknowledge that sometimes there are really deep underlying problems Mm -hmm. in society, which I feel had been ignored or at least not touched on as extensively, uh, in American literature up to that point. Yeah. And this is the part, you know, we're going to realism bleeds into naturalism, which is probably going to be the last thing we talk about in this section of the, the um, episode. But this is where we start to see kind of a fracturing of a sure reality that everybody had. Like everyone was very sure of their place in society and was comfortable with that, especially white people. Mm-hmm. And then, then, you know, education abounds and, you know, all these ideas of natural rights and, you know, every 
every American can make it on their own thing. They, they'll start going around and everyone starts demanding equal rights to chase that dream. And yeah, this is kind of the period where all that muck gets raked up, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it very much becomes an inextricable def- part of the definition of um, the American novel to me is like, what can, <laughs> what can we stir up? Like, what can we yeah. upset? Yeah. Um, so one last, before we go on to naturalism, which really is so similar to realism, um, I have written here that realism and naturalism both present a scene or a snapshot of how life really is. Um, that's what realism does. But what naturalism does is it tries to focus on the psyche of the characters rather mm-hmm. than, you know, images and fun stories. And so kind of straddling this line is Gilman, um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. <laughs> For some reason, I had to talk about this short story because it touched me a really long time ago. It's it's a story about a woman with a mental illness and just slowly kind of losing her mind in a room that she's locked in with yellow wallpaper and that's what it's called the yellow wallpaper Mm -hmm. and um i think it's really representative of this fracturing of reality of of muck being raked up and us having to face our really unhealed wounds from the past right and not being able to hide it anymore and that's kind of that's kind of what realism and naturalism's goal is is to reject the ideal um, in favor of the real just be- just because it's nice to believe in let's leave behind romanticism and let's start looking at how things really are and then that also begs the question how are things really whose objective opinion can we trust and that comes into our second episode i hope so i just yeah. wanted to touch on gilman real quick before we moved on to naturalism yeah and i'm glad that you did because because i think the yellow wallpaper is definitely a short story that is worth reading for everybody and anybody if nothing else, but for the tension that that story has in it. Like, if you want to talk about narrative tension, like, yes, hopefully if you're a good fiction writer, you have tension built into your plot that keeps the reader wanting more. But if you want to talk about tension that just gets under your skin and actually just makes, like, your jaw clench, Mm -hmm. like, you will find it in that story. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. So... Yes, and I, I know <laughs> it is. It's extreme. It's very good. It's very, very good. It's a interesting experience. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so we have naturalism coming up that goes until about 1914. Um, and you'll you know, if you know anything about history, you'll recognize that date is pretty significant. And mm-hmm. but right before that, we have authors like Stephen Crane, who wrote The Red Badge of Courage, Jack London, who wrote The Call of the Wild. John Steinbeck, one of my mom's favorites, um, and Michael's favorites, actually, um, especially East of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of an essential American author, I think. And I don't know if I can articulate why, really. He has some very, uh, especially of Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath, they're kind of, uh, I want to say classic, I don't really know how to explain it, good and evil. Like, there's very sure, uh, here, why, I don't know, why don't you take a stab? yeah no i'd be happy to i i've read a little bit of john steinbeck i should say quite a bit of john steinbeck leading up to this episode because it is really easy to get through a lot of his books they are fairly short they're narratively cohesive and they're just kind of easy to get through i listened to most of them on audiobook and Mm. then i you know read a few other things and i mean first of all i don't know 
this has nothing to do with the discussion. Maybe it has something to do with the discussion. I don't know. But John Steinbeck hates women. And that was the one thing that I took out of it, honestly, more than anything else, is that there are no female characters in his books. Or if there are, they are periphery characters that do not have their own names. They are always referred to as so-and-so's wife, so-and-so's girl. And it's, yeah, it's to the point where it is very noticeable. That being said, I think of the things that I read of his, uh, Cannery Row was probably my favorite Mm -hmm. because it's a very slice of life sort of a novel or short story or novella where it doesn't focus on just one character and like their narrative. Um, I mean, there, there are a couple of characters that are focused on more than others, but it's definitely more a snapshot of this town in Mendocino, California and or Mendocino County, I should say, California. And it's a very poor community and it, it doesn't even focus on the entire town. It mostly focuses on this one street in this one town. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that's going on and it's very sweet and it's very wholesome. And there aren't any characters that have, purely evil motivations you know you don't have any mustache twirling villains or anything like that yes you just have people who are maybe misguided people who have had you know a lot of bad luck in their life and it focuses on the way that they interact with people who have maybe had life you know give them a little bit more luck and it it very much presents this idea that opposes romanticism and the age of reason of, you know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Sometimes your circumstances just suck. And that's, <laughs> I think that's what makes of mice and men a particularly popular novel mm. because it focuses on two brothers, one who is um, mentally stunted And then the other who is honestly just so devoted to family and he wants to take care of his brother. And it's so hard because he still wants to give his brother some sense of autonomy, Mm. but he just can't handle it in a way that allows them to live peacefully. Yeah. And so it acknowledges that sometimes Again, life just sucks. It hands you crap on a platter and what you going to do about it? Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's just the kind of the the pervading themes of naturalism are the existential angst and just the, the feelings of pure isolation and everything kind of being hostile. Another author that I do kind of want to touch on as far as naturalism goes is Jack London, because he also kind of straddles that line between realism and naturalism and as we've kind of mentioned like depending on who you are that line may not even exist like they might be synonymous but after discussing with my sister who does enjoy the writings of jack london i did decide to uh, categorize it as a naturalism piece and then she actually did the favor i guess of reading a jack london story to me Uh, Mm -hmm. whenever we go camping we like to read short stories to each other And she read the short story called Lost Face by Jack London to me. And it is a really fascinating story about a 
Russian fur thief who is held captive by a tribe of locals in um, mid 1800s Russian America. So, you know, when Russia still had a foothold in America, which we forget, but it did happen. Yep. <laughs> and this fur trader comes up with a plan to escape captivity by the natives and it does not end the way that you think it will. <laughs> I mean, it kind of gets to a point where you're like, is he? No, but is he? Hmm, maybe. <laughs> so I recommend it partly because as far as the timeline of the story goes, the bulk of it happens over the course of like maybe 45 minutes. Oh, and that's weird. it. And then the, like, I'd say, like, the last quarter of the story happens over the course of another, like, few hours. Uh, but the fact that it focuses so much on this snapshot of interactions over the course of this, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, really emphasizes the fact that naturalism is about focusing on the thought processes and the feelings of of the narrators and and the characters i love it yeah so even if you don't have time to read other more notable works by jack london like the call of the wild or white fang i would say search out some of his short stories uh they are short enough that they are easily digestible over the course of I, you could probably knock out five of them in an evening, yeah. to be honest. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, I do recommend it. And if you kind of want to have a more interesting delve into naturalism, I do strongly recommend Jack London. Very cool. Good endorsement. Yeah. My anti-endorsement is Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which is hashtag unpopular opinion. And I'm just going to kind of leave it at that. But... I know that is a popular high school read, and I don't want to dunk on it too much because I personally know people that really love and adore that book. It was not for me. <laughs> Alrighty. I mean, what is it? I, I wrote it down. Did you write that down or did I write that down? I wrote that down. That yeah. Was and, and so how come? Like, is it so, anti-feminist? No, it's not anti-feminist. Um, it just has a depressing ending, I think. Uh, and, and that's probably why I don't like it. Not to say that, I don't know. That's hypocritical of me, though, because of Mice and Mend has a super depressing ending. Yeah, and so does The Bell Jar, <laughs> and that's one of my favorites. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. It is very naturalist. The plot goes into motion during this holiday that the main character's family takes uh, one summer. And she is kind of like a stifled, you know, high upper class uh, woman who pretty much doesn't do anything other than be the wife mm -hmm. of, you know, this this man of note. And during this vacation, she meets another man who kind of sparks something in her, um, whether it's sexual or not. Like, you can go ahead and kind of read into that. But that's the, the titular The Awakening. Mm -hmm. where she feels like there can be so much more to her life and it does not have to revolve around what society expects of her. Mm -hmm. And she kind of acknowledges that her position in society does not allow her to run around as free as she would like, but she 
she makes little concessions for herself here and there. And yeah. the majority of the book is just an exploration of her thought processes and her coming around to the realizations of what she can and can't do and what she wants. Wow. Well, don't read that book, apparently. It, I don't I, do what you want. <laughs> that was just that description was so like intriguing to me. And then I remembered, oh, she's not in necessarily endorsing it. Um, <laughs> gosh, I've just got so many other things on my list that that's, you know, it'll get pushed. Um, yeah, we have other authors like Frost and Sandberg, Robert Frost and Carl Sandberg, pretty notable poets. So as far as naturalism goes, what themes do we see here that are American? I kind of see some similarities with uh, realism and Mark Twain in the sense that like a lot of the, a lot of the imagery in the writing will be really beautiful, not overdone in the romantic sense, like where it's just getting ridiculous, but it shows like the everyday beauty of everyday scenes, you know, sitting with your brother or putting your feet in a lake and stuff like that. And maybe the simplistic nature of what the American dream started out as. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think that part of it is expanding on also the realism that we've seen founded by Sinclair, where there are problems. And I think that's where naturalism really shines is stating that, yes, there are problems with people, there are problems with society. And in order to understand those problems, we need to understand the people. And I think that's where naturalism really starts to influence what we want to consider the great American novel, which is part of being American is your experience. And up until yeah. the realism and naturalism point, it had been more about like the outward experience and not necessarily the inward experience. Yes. So it, it really bridges the gap between the two and allows the two to mesh in a way that we see pulled off in I think a rather important way in modernism and postmodernism. Mm -hmm. So that being said, <laughs> we're gonna go yeah. ahead and tie it up on that note. We're closing off this episode right before a big, you know, world changing event. Which what is what exactly is that world changing event, Audrey? Is it is it literally the atomic bomb or is it just like the is it the 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 state of living that we went to with the knowledge that we could use and build and implement those kinds of things you know like what is the big what is the big turning event if you had to pick one you know yes so that's something to think about before uh-huh uh -huh. the next episode yeah yeah i mean i'll i'll look into it i'll do yeah. some research because things are about um, to get really weird and there are a lot of reasons why but you can never get like i cannot exhaust talking about them and yeah. so I, I want to get your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that, hmm, I don't know. It's on the tip of my tongue. Honestly. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. So join us next time for the second part of our American novel discussion. So until you join us next time, we'll go ahead and put up some things that we're referencing on this episode, some of the short stories and a couple of the visuals that we talked about. And you can find that on Twitter at Kittens and Kanye. Mm -hmm. So find us there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yes, you'll find us there. You'll uh, find us we there. Still, we still exist. We haven't been banned. So 
Um, <laughs> you know, we'll take advantage of that for as long as we can. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And until you join us next time, I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Thorley. And this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Bye.